me. How you guys doing out there? Let me just say this. It's uh, as much fun as it is to be sequestered in your basement. The novelty wears off after about three or four days. If you've, uh, if you've had COVID, we got the early dose of it. So it, uh, apparently the later, later uh, versions are less lethal, but they still keep testing positive for a while. Anyway, but so glad to be back. So glad to be up and to see you guys. We are in a series called A Better Way where we're digging into how, as followers of Christ, we can learn not just to understand the things that Jesus said, but learn maybe how to live the way that Jesus lived those words out. And today we're sort of asking the question, how can we live with an uncluttered uh, way of living so that we are able to be undistracted from our pursuit of following Christ? It's a great question. And I pulled uh, some three points out of a passage in one of my favorite books. Well, actually, one of my favorite books uh, is Hebrews, but it's, the book is always my favorite is the one I'm currently in. So at this point today, Hebrews 12 is where we're at. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can turn there with me. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, these two verses have three points that we're going to draw from. <clears throat> See if you can find them as we go through on, on being uncluttered and undistracted. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside also every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you, you spot any of them in there? Any ideas? Right? Here they are. Keys to avoid distraction and following Jesus, number one. Lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. This is talking about kind of being weighed down or entangled in such a way as to prevent us from being able to do what Jesus might want us to do in the moments of life, right? So a weird question. Have you ever been physically entangled by something? Uh, just before the pandemic hit, I had a physical, and the physical demonstrated that I had uh, a little bit of a high level of cholesterol. So I checked my weight, and I compared it to what the medical community said was my preferred weight for a person of my height and build. And I may, I may have misremembered this, but I think what I heard was that I should weigh 50 pounds. I think, I think that's what the medical community was basically pushing, right? Uh, Nobody laughed at that. I thought that was fun. So, no sense of humor on Labor Day. Okay, get it. Anyway, I decided to lose about 25 pounds. I didn't go on an official diet at all. I did what a person would do if they have a weight hanging around their neck and they want to offload it somehow. I just paid attention to everything that I chewed, sipped, and swallowed. I didn't drop 25 pounds in a month. Slowly, over a few months, I shed those pounds, and it's uh, been kept off for the last two or three years now. And then Jackie and I watched this documentary on Netflix about plant-based diets. So we checked out the positives and we decided maybe we should move heavily in that direction. No, we've not given up meat completely, just reduced the intake of meat significantly. In other words, animals should still be cautious. That's all I'm saying. But has anyone ever been physically entangled by something yeah, you would know if you had, because it's no fun. Maybe you started messing around with stuff that seemed hardenless at the beginning, things you thought you could handle. 
I have a really close relative, relative who started with slot machines, and she ended up losing everything. Maybe you started texting someone who wasn't your spouse, or trying a substance with a friend, or just clicking on that website that one time. At first it was fine, right? But now it's not. You thought you could handle it, but now it's got a hold on you. And you're entangled. And you're stuck. And God is calling us as Christians to be engaged in his mission. But, you know, we find sometimes we can't move forward. We're just tied up and bound up by this other stuff. Maybe for you it's, uh, it's not necessarily sin. Because it's not just our sin that can hinder us or bind us or distract us, right? If we take them back to the text, it says, let us throw off everything that hinders us. Maybe stuff that's bound you up is not anything bad. You're just busy. Maybe you're a workaholic. So busy that if God called you to do something right now, you've got no space in your calendar. In fact, you've got no space to even hear what God might be actually calling you to do. Just too busy. Or maybe it's your hobbies. You're doing everything you can do to get that handicap down on the golf course. And you're out there three times a week, weekends, or whatever. Um, maybe you're just too comfortable. Like, God, I want to follow you, but you know what? I'm feeling pretty good about where I am right now. I'm good with my friends, good with my life. Uh, I'm fine with what I'm doing right now. And you're settling maybe for something that's good when you don't even know you might be missing out on something that could be great. Or maybe for you, what's hindering you, what's holding you back, uh, isn't anything other than something that's hurting you. Maybe hurts that somebody said about you when you were a little kid. Hurts maybe you still haven't healed from. Hurts maybe you still believe about yourself. Maybe it's unforgiveness. God is asking you to go forward, but you can't let it go. And all I can say is that if you find yourself in a place where you feel stuck and hindered and entangled, just from personal experience, I'll just tell you, that is not the life that God wants or has for us. Uh, There's a better way. Because Jesus said he did not die for us so we would stay stuck. In fact, he died to set us free. Love what it says in Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When Paul's talking in Galatians, uh, he's often talking here in terms of people trying to put additional rules and regulations and, and ceremonies on top of, of people who are, who are become Christians. But this thing applies to more than that's that. Maybe for you, you're desperate for, for freedom, but then again, maybe you're not. Maybe for some of you, you're still holding on desperately to the thing that you're entangled by. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I can handle this. I can have Jesus and, and this too. I'm going to be fine. Again, can I just say from experience, it's really hard to follow Jesus when my hands and my feet and my mind are entangled with what is not purposefully actually following Jesus. So what do we do? How do we throw off everything that hinders us, that distracts us from following Jesus fully? This whole concept reminded me, because I'm studying ahead in the book of John, uh, Jesus' experience with Lazarus. Who's Lazarus? He's one of Jesus' friends, uh, described as a person that Jesus loved. Lazarus falls ill. Jesus gets word about Lazarus falling ill, but he doesn't get up and zip to Bethany immediately. Uh, Bethany is a city just outside Jerusalem. It's over the, over the Mount of Olives on the other side of that hill. Um, that's where Lazarus lives with his sisters, 
Mary and Martha. Instead of beating feet, Jesus just delays. He doesn't even start heading there until he gets word that Lazarus has actually died. And he arrives four days later. Lazarus has already been in the tomb probably three plus days. We're going to cover all this more in depth when we get to John chapter 11. I've just used it here to make a relevant point. Jesus shows up and people are grieving outside of the tomb. Jesus has a brief conversation with each of the sisters, Mary and Martha, and then he goes into action and says this, take away the stone that they put in front of the tomb. And Martha immediately interrupts the proceedings at that point, noting that this is not a particularly good idea. He's been dead several days, and if you open up the tomb, the stench is going to knock us all over. Undeterred, Jesus has them pull back the stone. Jesus doesn't go into the tomb. No, he says, does something strange. He stands outside of the tomb and calls Lazarus out, which is interesting because dead people usually don't hear anything. Dead people don't usually respond to anything. Right? If you're a dead guy on your lawn, you tell him to get off the lawn, he's not going to go anywhere. He's dead. He's not able to be responsive to your words about getting off your property. But suddenly, in this case, Lazarus is not dead anymore. He is brought back to life. And he hears the command of Jesus, and he walks out. Only Jesus, it turns out, can pull that off. Only Jesus can bring something dead back to life. But as Lazarus steps out of the tomb, there's a little bit of a problem. What is it? Yeah, he's still wrapped up like a mummy in his grave clothes. He looks like a mummy, head to toe. And in terms of what we're looking at this morning, Lazarus is coming out of the tomb, but he is still hindered by those clothes, those wrappings that were holding him back. And Jesus, recognizing this, turns to his followers and says, unbind him, let him go, free him, in other words. And they jump in and they unbind Lazarus. Now he's free to move forward in the life and calling that Jesus has for him in the remainder of his physical life. And isn't it true that for some of us, as Christians, is it not true that God has given us new life? We were born spiritually dead. God brought us back to life. But maybe we're still bound up in our grave clothes, still hindered by the stuff that we were doing and engaged in and spending our time on before we got saved. Still hindered, maybe not completely free. That's why I think community is so important. That's why we value so much small groups. We want here at The Surge to create a place, environments really, for Christians to be able to be themselves, to be loved as they are, but also to wrestle together, right? And to help each other to move forward into becoming totally devoted followers of Christ. But not everybody here attends small groups. Not everybody is participating in the community with people helping them move forward to what God wants for them, and they're maybe still stuck and hindered, right? The other thing is happening is when you're not doing that, you're also not helping anybody else get unstuck and unhindered. And so we're not assisting others at all. So how do we live with an uncluttered pursuit of God's mission? Number one, we look to what it is that's holding us back. Everything is sort of, when you think about, oh, I can't do that. I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to help that person. Maybe that's something that's in the way that needs to be shucked. But that's not where we stop, because that's not where our passage stops. If we go back to Hebrew chapter 12, the author also says this, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's our second point, run with endurance. Some versions use the word 
perseverance, some translations. How do we live with an uncluttered pursuit of following Christ? One, we throw off everything that is uh, getting in our way. And two, we run the race that Jesus sets before us with endurance. Here's the thing that's so unpopular and unpleasant about endurance, about uh, running the race. It's hard. It's difficult. It's painful. In fact, if you are out there trying to uh, work yourself up to be able to run a marathon, you know it's painful. And you don't get, you don't get up on, a, on the Marine Corps marathon day and just decide you're going to run 26 point something miles, right? You've you got to build up to that. You've got to work hard and train and develop the skill and ability and the physical uh, regimen to be able to pull that off. You don't just do it uh, you know, on a whim at the end of the day, right? And uh, the same chapter we're in, kind of, uh, actually, Hebrews chapter 1, it actually talks about kind of discipline. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So there's a reason you're doing it, right? You want to run the marathon, but you can't run the marathon unless you train. Training is hard. Training is difficult. Training requires discipline. Training requires commitment, right? And you got to keep at it. And so it says, yeah, no discipline is easy. It's painful. Endurance, perseverance is tough. And I know this is true in all of our lives, right? No one woke up and said, God, please let me go through another global pandemic. No one woke up and said, please let us go through that. I'd like to grow and learn some more. <laughs> no one's praying, please uh, make that coworker even more difficult. Make that boss even more challenging for me to get along with. Right? I'd like to learn how to love unlovable people even better. You're not hoping that your marriage gets harder. We don't go there because it's hard. And no one wants to have to endure or persevere through stuff like that. But faced with the need for perseverance and endurance, sometimes that didn't even sound like an option to us. Sometimes we just want to drop out of the race altogether. We just want to quit. We just want to walk away because running the race is just too hard. So how do we do this? How do we endure? How do we push forward? Well, if Jesus directs you to take action to do something, here's the thought. Remember why you started Remember why you started training. Remember why you started running. When you're tempted to quit, remember why you got into the first place. When you're tempted to throw in the towel, when you're tempted to give up on that loved one, on that spouse, on that family member, to quit your job, remember why you started it all in the first place. Remember that Jesus cares about you, wants the best for you, and keep soldiering on. Heard a great story from a guy who is a, now a youth pastor. But growing up, when he was a little kid, his dad just basically abandoned the family, leaving the single mom to raise those three boys all by herself. Mom was amazing, no question about it. But the son saw the added stress and the pressure of being a single parent and what that placed on her. And his hatred over the years for his dad just grew and grew. He hated him for leaving mom, hated him for abandoning the family, and this hatred just kind of followed him around everywhere. He was constantly getting into trouble, consistently getting into fights with other kids. He wished he could kind of soldier through it. He wished he could get by it, get past it. 
The good news was his mom took him to church every week. And finally, at age 19, sitting in church, he heard a message the pastor did on forgiveness. And he doesn't remember much about the message other than this. He heard this from the pulpit. Forgiveness does not always change the other person, but it always changes you. And this kid thought to himself, man, that, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what I need. If I just forgive my dad, it really doesn't matter what he does after that. I will finally be free of this pain and this annoyance and this hate that keeps welling up in me. So, at 19 years old, he kind of turned into a private investigator. He tracked down his dad, and he set up a dinner with his dad. He sat across the table from his dad, and while they're eating, he just said, Dad, I'm sorry, I have hated you increasingly ever since you left when I was a little boy. I've hated you all these years, and I'm, and I'm sorry that I do hate you. Dad says, okay, I forgive you for hating me, and I'm sorry for having left. Boy says, that's okay, I forgive you. So they eat, then they depart. And at 19 years old, the kid thinks, great, done with that. I now have to never see that guy ever again. The race is finished. But boy, was he wrong. The race was actually just beginning. He found out there was a lot more stuff that he had to persevere through. Fast forward five years. The boy, now 24, has gotten married. He now has a son. And he was talking with a friend one day about life and such, and the topic veered to his father. He filled his friend in on all of it, how dad left, how he finally heard about this thing about forgiveness, that he looked him up, they had dinner, and he forgave him. And he was really almost proud about having done all that. And his friend says, man, that sounds great. So what's your dad think about your son? Oh, he ain't ever meet my son. Really, what, what's he think about your wife? He's never meeting her either. And the friend leans in and says, hmm, sounds like you kind of didn't finish the thing. And after some reflection, it dawned on him that he'd kind of given up in the middle of the race that God had set before him. So after a couple of months of really wrestling with it, he sets up another dinner for his dad to meet his son and wife. And he would tell you that some days it's really hard. Some days it's really frustrating. And he so wants this race to be over. And some days he's tempted to stop bag it all. But then he remembers back to when he was 19. And he wanted to be free of this hatred. And he wanted to be a good dad one day. He wanted to be a good husband one day. And he wanted to be a model of forgiveness and, and learning how to love your enemies to the youth he was now being a pastor of. And he would say, when he remembers why he got started on this whole trail in the first place, this whole race with his dad, it led him to want to persevere. And through Christ, he's now really a changed person. He's been able to do that. So for you and me, for you and me, maybe there's a race you're wanting to give up on right now because it's just gotten too hard. Maybe it's the job you're in. There's just so much tension. You feel awful about it. You want to throw in the towel. Maybe you're trying to remember why it is you got in that career field to begin with. Maybe for others, it's a marriage that you feel like is falling apart. Not any real good communication anymore. You're trying to remember why you fell in love with the first, 
for her or him in the first place. Can you remember why you made that commitment to that person at the beginning? For many of you, it may be a story about your dad or a mom or a sibling or a family member, someone who hurt you. I'll just tell you a personal story that's not in the script. Uh, we went to the beach several years ago, and one of our uh, relatives um, was upset that Jackie took a couple of our daughters to a tea party uh, and, and didn't invite everybody else. And it was because, really, the only day that our, our daughter could go. So this person harangued my wife with the nastiest of emails, and then so we all got together as two couples to talk about it, and she uh, denied ever having read the email, and her husband said, Oh, no, honey, you did. Uh, here it is. <laughs> I got it on my phone. Let's read it together. Uh, anyway, from that led to uh, all kinds of efforts Jackie made to try to re reconcile. Um, the person actually unfriended her on Facebook and then lied about that because if you know, I don't know that much about Facebook, but apparently you just can't unfriend somebody without purposely doing it. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't hit the wrong key. You have to make it want to happen. So we went through basically three or four years of this. Um, and I finally got a hold of Jackie, and I said, um, I think we need to forgive this person because I don't want the weight of this bitterness to affect you or me. I've seen things in this other person over the last three decades that gave me cause for pause. Um, and so I don't think I was the best husband in terms of how to leading her through this at the beginning. Uh, but now we are at the point where we are we're seeking forgiveness and for for her, and whether she changes or not, it doesn't matter. Um, just to be able to hang out with uh, the relatives when they come out for, to Cape May for vacation and not be have that sort of, oh, I hate this person. <laughs> we, want, we want that to end. We want to be untethered from that so we can do what God wants us to do for all the other relatives and even this person if something God does something to break, break the, 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 the nastiness on the whole relationship. So anyway... If you start the race of forgiveness with anybody, just remember why you started. Because you're looking to heal yourself, right? You're looking to restore yourself. You're looking to be like, okay, Christ forgave us. Okay, why did he do that? And doesn't he have every reason in the world to not keep forgiving us, <laughs> given the way we live every day? And so it's amazing to have that kind of forgiveness fall into our lap. And God says, okay, how about you just play that forward? It's our sin to put him on the cross, so how about we... Play it forward. Play that kind of forgiveness forward. I mean, speaking of Jesus, maybe he's the best example. He's about to die in a few hours on a cross. He knows what's coming, this incredibly brutal death. He's praying in a garden to God, and he says, God, if you can take this cup of suffering you know, away from me, that'd be awesome. But not my will, but yours. And he remembered why he started the race that he came down to earth for. Not for his will, but for God's. For our salvation, which we weren't too lovable, God, by the way, everybody on earth, it says, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserved that kind of forgiveness. None of us deserved to have the Son of God come down, take on flesh, and then live a life with no sin so that he could die for the sin that we've all committed. Where did that love come from? It's almost unimaginable. But there it was. So he remembered why he started the race. So he was able to persevere in that race to include death on a cross. How do we live with an uncluttered pursuit of following Christ? Well, one, we throw off all the stuff that gets in our way, 
And you know it's in your way when you can't do the things that God's trying to tell you to do. Or you're not even able to listen to the things that God is trying to tell you to do because you're too busy with other things. Two, we run the race with perseverance. And then finally, here's the third thing from this text in Hebrews. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Back to that scripture, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the wraith marked out for us, looking to Jesus, or another translation says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, what is it that our eyes are fixed on? What has captured your attention? Because when our eyes are fixed on anything other than Jesus, it will inevitably lead us away from Jesus. My daughter, Lindsay, and son-in-law, Justin, down in Lynchburg, have three kids. First and third, Lucy and Penny. Pretty calm. Pretty calm. Pretty reasonable from an adult parent's perspective. The middle one, Molly, whom you guys were praying for to recover from Kawasaki's disease back in the spring. And thanks for that. She's doing fine. She just had another heart scan. It looks perfect, so that's all good. But she is a little booger. Uh, you got to watch all wee ones pretty closely, right? If you know that. If you got wee ones, you know that. But some, you got to watch more closely. Molly's one of those. When our twin granddaughters, who are now 13, came over as wee ones, we didn't have to baby-proof the home at all. They just never ventured into trouble. But Molly, there's a reason, right? Mom called her the hyena at one point of desperation. <laughs> you have to have your eyes fixed on her all the time, I mean all the time, for herself and anybody around her's sake, right? Now, in the same way that mom and dad have to have this undivided attention to keep Molly and other people around safe, as followers of Christ, if we ever find ourselves in situations where we've taken our eyes off of Christ, then we're going to find ourselves frustrated because of all the crazy clutters and distractions of life. They're going to butt in. The result, instead of actually following Christ, into a better way of living, we're going to get sidetracked along the journey. There was this moment in Jesus' ministry where he had the disciples going with him to Jerusalem. And it's uh, actually right before this happens that he's pulled all of his disciples together to tell them that, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. Um, and then I'm going to, you know, come back to life. So that's probably about the third time he's actually told them this. Uh, so that just happened. But along the way of this trip to Jerusalem, James and John come to Jesus, and they ask him a question. And the question reveals that their eyes aren't so fixed on Jesus, but on what they wanted Jesus to do for them. Why? Because it seems that they were convinced that once he get in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to deal with the religious leaders, he's going to get free of the Roman Empire, he's going to install a new government, in Israel with Jesus as the king. And these disciples thought, it might be a good time right now, before we get there and things start happening, to apply to be the prominent and influential figures in that new regime. Of course, that's not what Jesus was actually planning to do. What he talked about dying and being raised is it just kind of flew right over their heads. So they come to Jesus with this question in Mark chapter 10. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, 
What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. See, what James and John had their eyes fixed on was not Jesus' mission, but on theirs. Their eyes were not fixed on what God wanted them to do, or what God wanted for them, but what Jesus could do for them. Their eyes were fixed on gaining position and power for themselves. How often do we do the same thing? We're in our relationship with Jesus. Instead of just enjoying his presence, following him, we find ourselves chasing after all the things that we want from him, rather than just enjoying and following him wherever it happens to lead. How about this? At the Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples, he gets to this moment where he tells them, all of them, there's going to come, there's going to come a time when all of you guys are going to abandon me. Now, Simon Peter, always the first, usually, to speak, is having none of this. Not a chance. Never going to abandon you. I'll never disown you. I will follow you, even if it costs me my life. But Jesus tells them, well, truly, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And Peter is continuing to insist emphatically that he'll never turn his back on Christ. And all the other disciples say basically the same thing. But it wouldn't be very long until Jesus is arrested and the disciples scatter. And as Jesus predicted, Peter ends up denying even knowing Jesus, much less following him three times. Then Jesus would be condemned to crucifixion. He would be beaten. He would get spit upon. He would be mocked. There would be a crown of thorns placed on his head, a wooden rugged cross placed on his back. He'd be told to carry that to the hill called Calvary, and he would be doing it alone. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had told everybody, if you want to be my follower, it's going to come with a cost. There's a price, and the cost is this. To be my follower, you've got to be willing to deny yourself. You've got to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. But Jesus is carrying that cross to Calvary, and none of his disciples are with him. Nobody there to carry the cross, right? So a new Simon is needed, apparently. We're told in Mark's Gospel, a certain man from Cyrene named Simon was called to carry the cross to Calvary. So what's so fascinating to me in this moment is that maybe that was supposed to be Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest buddies. He was Jesus' guy, right? But his eyes so fixed now on protecting himself, he missed his opportunity to be with Jesus in one of the most painful and dark moments of Jesus' ministry. How often do we miss the moments we're called to. When there's something God wants us to do, but our eyes are so fixed on staying safe that we lose opportunity altogether. What is that thing for you? Is there something where you felt maybe that prompting from God to step out in faith, to reach out to somebody in need, to do that thing that kind of scares you just a little bit, to show up uh, in a situation where you're having to weigh the odds and answer the question, do I really love my neighbor that much? Or is my eyes fixed on protecting my reputation, my time, my agenda? Instead of doing what I know God wants me to do in this moment, I choose to do what I want to do in this moment. How often do we take our eyes off Christ because our eyes are getting fixed on something that isn't Him? We get distracted from Jesus by something that isn't Jesus. I'll be honest, when Jackie and I hit Wegmans, we're usually deadly serious 
about getting what we need, what we have written down on our list, and getting out. Right? Back in May, we were careening down the aisles, and I see a woman with a newborn strapped to her. I almost went up to make over the baby, but something stopped me. Turns out we passed by them again in another aisle, and this time Jackie saw her, and she made the first contact. The woman lit up. And within 30 seconds, you would have thought they had been best friends since birth, right? So we offered to babysit. Turns out they're from Bangladesh, and they just moved here. Their families are, are back home. They exchanged phone numbers. The women did. Um, turns out they live about five minutes from us. We've already been to their house. We took some baby clothes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the point is, I'm making is this. We can have our own agendas. But what if God has something better for me and us and our own agendas? What if we were not so distracted by our own agendas? <laughs> Could this kind of thing happen all over the place? If we were just keenly keeping our eyes on Christ. And my gosh, what an existence that might be if we did that. And so then, what we're told as we get back to James and John is that Jesus is crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning written charge above his head. This is the king of the Jews. And there's two rebels crucified with him, one on his right one on his left. That I found interesting. Why? Well, where was it that James and John wanted to be? Yeah, on Jesus' right hand and on his left. They could have at least been standing beside Jesus in this moment. John was at the foot of the cross, apparently, but where was James? Where were the others? They abandoned him. And so the only people on the right and left were two criminals. So here we have Jesus, the Son of God, who entered history to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins of all humanity. He chose and loved and taught and formed this team of disciples to do this mission with him, but their eyes were not fixed on him. So they turned their backs to him. So here's the Son of God dying, and Peter and James and two of the closest disciples, and all the others, but John, our MIA. So here's my point. If they can get distracted, after walking with Jesus for three years, talking to him daily, seeing him at work doing miracles after miracles, seeing him teach, hearing him teach, being convinced in their minds and hearts that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, yeah, if that happened to them, how hard is it going to be for you and me to keep our eyes fixed on Christ? to not get distracted. I mean, I'm supposed to be following Christ with every ounce of my being, mind, soul, body, and strength, right? Keep my eye fixed on him, even though I've never seen him face to face. What hope for there is uh, for, the, for us in this modern world exists, where every distraction you can possibly imagine is available to you at the tip of your fingers. Just a Google search away, just an Amazon purchase away, yet we're called to keep our eyes fixed on him so we can live with an uncluttered pursuit of following him. I think the one advantage that we have is that we actually know how the story ends. Right? Because what seemed like to everybody around Jesus at the time, in the darkest moment of history there, was actually the opening bell of Jesus coming out in his glory, through his resurrection. The disciples finally got all that after the resurrection. Sitting here in our seats today, we know what those disciples did not know at the time of Jesus' arrest or the time of his trial or at his crucifixion. 
We know now what they finally discovered three days later, that Jesus' crucifixion was not the end of the story. It was just a pause, because three days later, he would walk out on his own grave, held head, head held high in victory. And now, as his followers, because of his resurrection from the dead, his spirit was poured out on them and us. His resurrection power is flowing through our veins, inviting every single one of us to do what those original disciples couldn't do before, but did pull off in that post-resurrection world. They flooded into that world and utterly changed it. So how do we as followers of Jesus in our modern world live with an uncluttered pursuit of following Jesus? Well, we've got to do some work, right? We've got to throw stuff off that hinders us, that gets in our way. We have to run the race then, once we see it, with perseverance, and we have our eyes fixed on Christ. But there's going to be a lot of things that compete for our attention. Maybe for you it's a job, got pressures, stress of trying to provide for your family in an economy, in a workplace that's not very stable. Maybe your job's not even guaranteed. Maybe for you, you're somebody where your home life is just chaos. Maybe you got a loved one who's just been diagnosed with a dread disease, and you're not sure if they're going to be able to pull through, but you're praying and begging for God to show up. How do we live with an uncluttered pursuit of following Jesus? Even in those moments, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, because what Jesus is inviting us to do is live a better way. Why did Jesus jettison everything that could have held him back? Why did he persevere? Why did he keep his eyes zeroed in on what his father wanted? Well, we're told in Hebrews 12 too. Back to that. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of being on a cross, right? And who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy set before him that led him to endure the cross. It's what he had faith in that was coming as a result of the cross. How do we live with an uncluttered, undistracted pursuit of Christ? First thing we do, throw off everything that gets in our way. Second thing, we run the race with perseverance. And finally, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And why in the world would we ever do that? Same as Jesus. For the joy that is set before us in following him undistracted. And listen. If you do not believe that joy awaits you, I will tell you straight up, you will never follow him. You'll never do it. Not the way it's described as we look at Jesus' life. But if you do, what you will find is that it is just a better way to live. Let me pray us out of here and then we'll do communion. God, we thank you that you can heal, that I'm back in the pulpit, being able to stand up and not be stuck in a basement. We thank you for your word that challenges us with the reality of what life is and what it could be, and sometimes convicts us for what we're actually living. Maybe we're wasting the moments away when we could be following you and undistractedly pursuing what you want us to pursue and maybe changing our world. So as we get ready to take communion, we know that you, you died 
You died for us, for the joy that awaited us. Why did you want us in your kingdom? We do not know. We don't get it, but you did. That was how deep your love was. You loved us that much. You just asked us to play it forward. Love others around us who aren't that lovable either. And so we often forget that we're not lovable, that you loved us anyway. So, as we take communion, convict us. Change our minds, change our hearts. That will change our behavior. That we might actually be able to pursue you in a way that is genuine and real and that you will lead us into things that we never imagined that would be joyful, that would be exciting, and not so boring and dull. So as we take communion, we give our lives to you. We remember why we started this race with you. Because you loved us, and we're simply loving you back. So we ask that you would just have your way with us. In Christ's name, amen.